Uh, hello, I'm Norrie Wilson. Welcome to If Glasgow Walls Could Talk, a podcast by Glasgow City Heritage Trust about the stories, relationships between historic buildings and the people of Glasgow. You'll usually be used to hearing Neil introduce the podcast, but now for the final episode in series two, we're doing something a little bit different and I get to turn the tables and Neil to hear his thoughts and opinions about Glasgow, its built heritage and how it impacts upon the communities that we all live in. So, to get started, Neil, can you tell us a bit about your, your own journey, how you ended up in Glasgow, and how you have risen to become the director of the Glasgow City Heritage Trust? Gosh, that sounds very posh. <laughs> um, okay, right, how did I wind up here? It's a long story. So yeah, I originally come from Hong Kong, so I was born and brought up in Hong Kong in the 1970s, and I absolutely loved living in Hong Kong. It's a fantastic city. Um, but both my parents were both, um, both came from Scotland. So though my mum technically was born in Birmingham, her family are kind of from Leith and New Haven in sort of Edinburgh direction. Leith obviously separate from Edinburgh, yeah. so you can't Always make that mistake. That. Um, so, and whereas my dad comes from Kilmores, which is a wee village just outside of um, Kilmarnock. And so they both kind of wound up in, in Hong Kong separately and uh, met there and got married there and, um, you know, had a family with my brother and I. And because they were both um, employed by the Hong Kong government in the 1960s, they were still on um, colonial contracts. Mm -hmm. And so they both come from quite um, kind of lowly backgrounds. My, my, my dad's family were kind of builders and miners in Ayrshire. And... Um, my mum's family were kind of, they were involved in shipbuilding on the, the Firth of Forth. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that, that was kind of their, their background. So anyways, part of your colonial contract, you could send your children to school in the UK. And their thinking at the time, kind of the, the sort of mid-70s, was they were going to be coming back to the UK at mm -hmm. some point. And so they thought they would send my brother and I ahead to kind of school in, in Edinburgh to get us used to it. And so I wound up going to boarding school in, in Edinburgh, which was a horrible experience <laughs> and absolutely not me, and got sent when I was nine. And um, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy because it was a really horrible experience and it made me terribly homesick. I'm not surprised. Um, but I did, it was funny because I found um, the Edinburgh Botanics and the glass houses in the Botanics. Yeah. And I used to escape to them. So I really, was really badly bullied at school. Um, so I used to escape to them and hang out. And I've always wondered whether any of the staff in the Botanics thought, you know, why is there this like 10 year old kid hanging around in the Botanics all the time? But in the glass houses, because they were like the tropical ones, they were so nice and steamy. It was a nice escape for me. I suppose it would almost have been back in Hong Kong. Well, absolutely. Because it was, it, was, it, was, it was that. It was like, you know, it, 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 it felt like it made me feel at home because it was like the kind of the rainforest in, in Hong Kong. So it was kind of nice to kind of discover that. But anyway, the good thing about that school was it had a really excellent art department, which you could kind of escape to. And we had really good um, set of teachers there who were fantastic. Um, uh, this, this husband and wife couple, um, Mark and Lottie Shaverton, who were really lovely, kind of um, very, very Christian. And they went on to establish the, the Leith School of Art um, in Leith. And um, very sadly, they both died in a car crash when they were very young. But the Leith School of Art has kept on going that they set up. And they believed firmly that anyone could draw. And so they were really rigorous in doing this. And you had to do these exercises where basically... You weren't allowed to take your 
your pen or your pencil off, off the, the paper. Page. You had to do the whole thing like in a single line. Oh my God, it was so difficult. But that was the discipline of doing it. That really taught me how to draw and how to look. And then the other thing that they did, which I've really appreciated in hindsight, was they sent you out to draw in plain air in the city. And so you kind of got to know Edinburgh. And it's funny, I, I hated Edinburgh at the time because <laughs> I just wanted to be back in Hong Kong. And Edinburgh was so not me. And I now look back and realize, oh my God, I was so spoiled. Um, because Edinburgh is such a fantastic city. So it was it was really interesting. And that, that was what kind of taught me to kind of look at cities and begin to appreciate cities. And I was also, because I was growing up in Hong Kong and it was such a uh, fantastic city that was basically, um, and it's kind of interesting because I've kind of, I've realized now in hindsight in my life that growing up in Hong Kong would have been the equivalent of growing up in Victoria and Glasgow because it was going through that same kind of boom and then what I've done is effectively by traveling back to Scotland, I've kind of moved forward in time to a post-industrial city from a, a city that was going from pre-industrial to industrial to a kind of post-industrial city, which has been quite interesting yeah. because I can kind of look back and, and compare the two with Glasgow being this kind of you know, vic- incredible Victorian boomtown. Um, and so I realized as I was kind of you know, looking at the city evolving, that I was actually really interested in cities and how they evolved. And I was particularly fascinated Norman Foster's um, Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, which was the world's most expensive building, which was being built in Hong Kong when I was in the, kind of my early teens. And so it was that that kind of eventually switched me on to architecture. And when you have to apply for um, schools of architecture, I had all the, the wrong exam results, but I had a really good portfolio. And so my school were kind of like, yeah, you'll never get in. And totally discouraged me from doing architecture anyway. If you weren't going to be a doctor or a lawyer, they kind of didn't want to know. And they were like, why do you want to be an architect? Architects don't make any money. And, um, and it was like, yeah, I discovered that later that they were in fact correct. But um, and anyway, um, I applied to the Glasgow School of Art and I got in on the strength of my portfolio. And it's funny, I also had to apply to Edinburgh as well. But if you put Glasgow first, yeah, yeah Edinburgh reject you completely. So I got I got unconditionals from Glasgow and from Dundee and I opted for Glasgow because when I came to Glasgow, you know, the art school was so fantastic. And it was after I left the interview, I kind of was walking down through the city because I didn't know Glasgow at all. Yeah. And got to St. Vincent Street and was walking down St. Vincent Street. And the way that kind of St. Vincent Street, the buildings really rise up and it becomes kind of this canyon of kind of stone and all these fantastic facades. And it really reminded me of kind of Causeway Bay in Hong Kong, where it's really, really dense, kind of densely packed buildings. And you're like in a canyon of buildings. And I thought, oh, I could live here. Um, I like this city. And, and it was a bit of a shock to the system coming mm-hmm. here. So the first, first night I was here, this is 1981, I was with a Singaporean friend who was studying medicine up at the university. And we were going to the ABC. So we're standing in the queue to get into the ABC on Sophie Hall Street. And chatting away, and this guy taps me on my back and um, says to me, where are you from? And I'm like, should I explain the whole Hong Kong bit? Do you mm-hmm. think that's probably a bit much? So I said, I'm from Edinburgh. And he said, ah, oh, right. So you're a snob. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Which>, like, oh, <laughs> And that was kind of when I realised that whole kind of public school kind of, you know, accent I'd picked up by being in, in Edinburgh for too long. Had to go. <laughs> yeah, couldn't do that in Glasgow. So, um... So, yeah, on the back of that, I uh, began to get to know Glasgow. I mean, the good thing about the uh, Macintosh School of Architecture, which had a really good reputation, not just in Scotland, but in the UK and globally yeah. at that time, because it was um, headed up by Andy McMillan, Professor Andy McMillan. Who went on to Chicago School of yeah. Art? He was, well... Uh, was he, he, no, no, he, 
it was it was the it was the guy after Andy mm-hmm. McMillan that went on and headed up the Chicago That's Institute right. of Arts. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so but Andy was what kind of sort of the Iceland mm-hmm. Arts region, and it was also with with him. It was quite funny. So like he he did the kind of the introductory lessons when you start in kind of mm-hmm. year year one, and. He's so no-nonsense Glaswegian. He had just come back from a summer in Hong Kong and he'd been kicked out of the Hong Kong club, which was like the poshest club yeah. in, in Hong Kong, for not refusing to wear a tie. Good and on him. he was like, you know, these snobs. I hate public school snobs. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> I better do something about that as well. Um, so it was kind of a bit of a baptism of fire kind of doing um, architecture here. But the good thing about the Mac was... It was all based in Glasgow. It was kind of like any exercises you did, kind of any building that you were set a brief to design was all kind of, it had to respond to a typology in Glasgow. So you, like, you had to design a tenement, you had to design a civic building that had to be on particular sites in Glasgow. You were always kind of set these tests. And so you got to know the city really well as a consequence of that. And you got kind of, you know, the feel of a place as an urban city. And it was a very, it was unusual because most schools of architecture just focus on the building themselves. Whereas in Glasgow, there was a real element of urbanism to it. And so you got to feel, you know, have a better feel for how a city actually is pieced together and works. So that the the city is kind of, not to sound pretentious, but it's this kind of spatial experience of kind of being able to pass through and understand the city. You really got to know that at the the Macintosh School of Architecture. And it was, you know, that's never left me. And it's something you didn't get in other schools of architecture. And it's a really tough course. So, um, you know, it's a seven-year-long course. And part of it is you get what are called crits where you basically have to pin up your work for the entire school to kind of evaluate. And you have like a panel of... Um, lecturers and kind of professors that sit and pass judgment on your work in front of everybody. So there's nowhere to hide. Nowhere to so it. it can, you know, it can be really demoralizing, though it can be if you get good feedback, it can obviously be quite good too. But there's some funny stories there with Andy. There was like one time, there was like this um, huge kind of crit space at the back of the Mac where there were like three um, sliding boards. So the first person would be pinning up, the second person would be getting critted. And then the third person would be taking their work down and they would just slide the boards over so that, you know, they could get yeah. one after the other. So Andy's not paying attention to this person in the middle who's kind of given their whole spiel on, you know, how wonderful their building is. And he's, he's focused on this guy uh, who's pinning up and the guy moves to kind of slide his, you know, work over. And Andy just goes, just keep going. <laughs> and it was so cruel. <laughs> but that's what the place was like. So I ended up on the back of that because I did do lots of sketching and kind of plein air. I won the Sir Robert Lorimer Award for my sketchbooks, which was, it was really nice. And that was kind of, um, I just did that off my own back. I was being encouraged by an American friend of mine who was an exchange student. who was like, you do, you do really good sketches. Why don't you just fire it in and see what happens? Because at that time I had no kind of confidence in myself. And so I did. And that was all on sketches around Glasgow and some sketches in Boston. And, and so won this award on the back of that. And then after that, you know, having, having finished that, I, I, I'd gone back to Hong Kong for a couple of years. I was working in Hong Kong for a couple of years. And then you have to come back for your final two years at, at the MAC. And um, then after that, you basically, that's you. You've kind of... Set free into the wild. Set, set free into the wild. <laughs> so, so you have to do a kind of further year of professional studies. And then you can sit your part three exam. Yeah. So it's, that's why it's such a long process. So when I got out, there were no jobs in Glasgow at that point. 
Um, and Hong Kong had been handed back to the Chinese by that point. So 1997 had kind of happened. And the Far East Asian financial crisis was happening. And so I couldn't go back to Hong Kong because there were no jobs there. And by that point, I had also I'd been doing some work because I had worked in Hong Kong for two years and I'd been able to save money. I'd spent a summer working for um, doing voluntary work for Scottish Age Monitor. And because this was all part of coming yeah. out and kind of accepting that, that I was gay. And I met my partner there. And so my partner is very working class Glaswegian. And so we've been together ever since. And But still, you know, there were no jobs in Glasgow. So I eventually ended up um, working in Berlin. I had friends in Berlin who had been at the Mac and they needed um, people in their office. So I ended up going over to, to Berlin to work. And at that point, I really wasn't sure what I was doing with my life. And it turned out ironically, that um, the one thing the Germans aren't terribly good at is their postal service outside of Germany. Yeah. And so I was sitting writing all these letters back to my, my partner at home, and he wasn't getting anything. And he thought I'd just cut off. And, you know, that was it. I'd basically just done a runner. And, um, and then one night I was thinking about him, and this is about three months in, and then uh, got off the... I was living in Prenzlauerberg at this point, in a, in a 10 minute in Prenzlauerberg. I, I know the area. <laughs> and, um, which is now you know, very, very posh, yeah. but at the time was, was in the east, and so we're still quite impoverished. And you know, the experience of living in a tenement in, um, in Berlin is quite tough mm-hmm. compared to... The, when you live in a tenement in Berlin, you realise how well the Glass regions built their tenements. So things like... You know our stairs because of all the kind of the building code here was pretty was pretty strong um, compared to Germany. The stairs in Germany were timber stairs. Yes, six six story tenements with timber stairs, and you used to go up them and think, you know, what would happen if there was like a fire? You'd be completely, you know, you'd be stuffed. It's, <laughs> there was no way out. And it's, it's, it's strange. It's my, shocking. They were step, so poorly built. My stepson, who's a, a graphic designer, and his girlfriend, because. He's a graphic designer, as long as you get an internet link, mm-hmm. you can work anywhere. So they did about three years of living in Berlin, in right. various, various parts of Berlin. And of course, it was my first job. I think I'd been through Berlin a couple of times, mm-hmm. uh, Eurorailing years yes. back, yeah. b- before the fall of the wall. So I yes. remembered the East-West thing. Uh, but obviously they were there after the wall was down. So myself and David's mother, you know, we've got a base in Berlin. <laughs> so it was literally like three or four months. We just uh-huh. go, right, cheap flight to Berlin. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll go out and it was the same thing with, with my friends. It was exactly the same and thing. It's, and it's that strange that aspects of Berlin, I saw very like Glasgow, mm-hmm. except for the fact that in Berlin, you can you can catch the U-Bahn at three o'clock in the morning. That's absolutely. Whereas, a public transport network is Whereas in Glasgow on a Sunday yeah. after six o'clock, no, nope, sorry. Nope, sorry. You've had your fun when, you when you come back from Berlin, you kind of think, oh my God, Glasgow, you've really got to up your game. And it yeah. starts an opt-its game, but yeah. it's got to do so much better. But yeah, absolutely. That was that was my experience in Berlin. So, and, and um, with, with my friends there, um, yeah, it was one time, ni- 1995. So um, New Year's Eve, 1995, uh, ended up, um, we had this, there was a huge party in front of the Brandenburg Gate and it was still con- kind of complete desolation yeah. at that point except for the ho- Hotel Alden had been had been rebuilt by that point but nothing else was there and we, I remember doing this huge conga at midnight through the Brandenburg Gate and thinking oh my god this is just so bizarre <laughs> if you think like you know just a handful of years beforehand you'd been shocked you because you're in the middle of and it was just how much Europe had, had changed it was such a fantastic experience 
But at the same time, I began to realize I actually really, really missed Glasgow and I missed my partner. And so, yeah, this one night he turned up out of the blue, opened the door to the tenement and there he is sitting on the stairs. And it was like, what are you doing here? I've come to and, get you. Yeah. And it was like, um, I, I hadn't heard from you. Like, what's going on? And it was like, I've been sending you letters. And was, I, I take it this, and, this was sort of pre, pre you know, ubiquitous mobile phone days. Yeah, exactly. Pre, pre-mobile, pre-mobile phone and kind of internet. And, uh, and the ironic thing was as soon as he got back to Glasgow, all my letters arrived. <laughs> it was like, go. see, I was telling the truth. <laughs> Just and, as well. <laughs> uh, so after that, I decided, right, well, actually, I was, because um, Berlin is a really fantastic city. I mean, it was, a, it was great fun living there. But at the same time, it's so flat. And after mm-hmm. I began to do my head in, uh, because like coming from, you know, Hong Kong is a harbour city, yeah. which is all surrounded by steep, steep, mountains, steep mountains, steep mountains. And then Glasgow is surrounded by steep mountains and, you know, fantastic harbour as well really began to miss the sea and began to 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 miss you know um the mountains and it was like one time someone said why don't you go and have try one of the hills in berlin and it was like this mound in kind of east berlin which was about 100 foot is, high and is that the one is that <laughs> the like, one they built from the rubble i think it might have been yes yeah, yeah, like, like well. you know that's it that's all um but at the same time, you do realize that there are really strong parallels between Berlin and Glasgow, particularly the kind of grids of tenement streets and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, that where you get to Dayton's and Glasgow, the kind of three or four story tenement streets that were kind of imposed by John Carrick, the city architect. You get all that stuff happening in Berlin too, these really long linear streets really, really appreciated the, that kind of quality and can see that when you're standing in areas like East yeah. Pollock Shields, you can really see it or, or Governor Hill, you can really see that really clearly. Um, so I kind of appreciated those qualities too. So anyway, came back to Glasgow. We bought a flat in Pollock Shields by that point and fell in quite accidentally with the folk from Pollock Shields Heritage. And so that kind of switched me on to conservation. I mean, it was quite funny because it kind of brought down the average age quite a bit. Yes. But um, which I think they were interesting. It was, oh, you're an architect as well. So we'll have one of you. Um, and but actually, it kind of made, made me think about kind of conservations and cities and what's special in cities. And so that kind of did really switch me on to it. And, that, you know, Glasgow had a lot of value in it. And I remember going to um, uh, an interview um, as an architect in Glasgow and commenting on how fabulous the kind of the, the Victorian and Edwardian um, buildings were and how beautifully they were ornamented in the city centre. And this guy in the interview commenting, I know, it's such a shame the planners want us to keep them. <laughs> I'm like, there's a problem with <laughs> <That's> that? Right. <laughs> your, point, your point is correct. <laughs> I know, absolutely. They wouldn't let us do anything modern, I'm thinking. But these are so fantastic and you're never going to be able to you know, emulate Replicate. them. You, mm-hmm. You're really going to struggle. And having real debates with with people about that, with one one two three St Vincent Street, I remember having a debate with one well known architect about that, and um, that it was just sham facadism. Yeah. And I'm like, but it's such a fantastic series of facades. Mm. I mean, okay, I completely agree that the interior shouldn't have been lost, but it was basically like it should have been demolished completely, completely and yeah. start again. And it's like, but you'd never be able to match that kind of quality. I mean, it is that is that strange thing you folk talk about knowing a city like the back of their hand. Yeah. And there, I mean, there are there's. Hundreds of bits in Glasgow that yes. I know that I could be dropped in, and I could yeah. tell you with, within less than a second yes. exactly where, where I am, you are. exactly which way I'm facing, yes. and what I'm surrounded by. Yes. And yet, there's other more modern bits of Glasgow where if you yeah. drop me, it's... I'd be looking about for thirty seconds where I went, ah, this is this used to be. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And 
so anyway, on the, the back of being involved in Port Shield's heritage, um, I wound up sitting on um, Glasgow City Council's um, Glasgow Open Design Panel. Yeah. And to get to see all the kind of the big um, planning applications that basically affect the city centre or other kind of you know parts of the, the city, if there's a, a major planning application, it usually gets run past the um, Glasgow Open Design Panel for a comment. They don't have any statutory weight, but if the planning officer is interested in what their commentary is, it can end up being um, put into the, uh, the report that goes to the planning um, applications committee. So it has a bit of influence. So anyway, I felt that you know, being on that panel, it was incumbent upon me to know something about Glasgow, to know about its history, to know about how it developed urbanistically. Your your and that's it. And to get to know what all the buildings were in the city, what was special about them and who the architects were. Because I felt that you, you know, if you were there to serve a civic purpose on that committee, you had to know your stuff. But turned out that not everybody agreed with me on that particular point. But anyway, um, so that was kind of how I kind of really began to, and, I, and and I'd also having you know been to boarding school and had this kind of pretty horrendous experience there. I still have friends who are from from that boarding school, but they mean scattered to the four winds, and so they're they're all over the world. And one thing, because I've been so badly bullied and I've been so homesick for Hong Kong, I really wanted to put down roots in a place. And I didn't want to be this kind of rootless person that didn't really know where they belonged in the world and just, you know, I wanted to be somewhere that I could call home. And so I have done my utmost to kind of make Glasgow my home on the back of that. And so it was all it was all that too. Um, and it's just a series of coincidences. So um, Doors Open Day came up. This was um, this was a two, 2001. And Alison, sorry, I'm, 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 I'm laughing. I'm laughing <laughs> slightly because I'd, I'd, I'd been doing my own sort of heritage thing, and then doors open day came along, uh, yep. and they got in touch with me before I knew it. I was you got you got sucked into yeah, all of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this this is back in two thousand and one, and Alison Tanner, who was running doors open day for Glasgow Building Preservation Trust at the time, um, put out this email to people she thought might be interested in the city, basically saying, you know, would you be interested in um, suggesting any buildings that you want to see opened up on Doors Open Day, and I was the only person who responded to her email. And it was oh. like these buildings I wanted, I would really like to get into. And so she said, "Okay, right, I'll do my utmost to get those open for you." But here's the quid pro quo: Would you do a walking tour in Glasgow for me? And it was like, mm, "Well, okay." Mm-hmm. And so I volunteered to do this this walking tour up Buchan Street. Um, and I thought, well, I'll give that a go. And then, of course, this is like six months before Doors Open Day happened. Mm-hmm. And so about, you know, a month beforehand, started panicking about the whole thing. Thinking, oh, my God, they're going to still rumble me. Anyone who comes in this, because it's sold out. And anyone who comes in this is going to straight away go, you're not a class region. What are you doing this? Imposter and, syndrome. And imposter yeah. syndrome. So, and I was like really terrified. So I dragged my... Um, uh, both my partner and my mum along on it, um, which was quite funny too. And... We started at what's now the Cafe Nero in um, Sydney you know, Square, and which was originally, you know, the entrance yes, to the Glasgow the sub- sub- subway. And so I was standing in front of it, and I suddenly noticed that James Miller, who designed that, you know, lovely little Scottish baronial jewel of a building, that the archway has these devil's masks around it. And basically, this was like um, the entrance to hell. It was the entrance. It was. It was. You know, it was the Buffy the Vampire Slayer kind yeah. of. This is, um, what is it, what, Hellgate. Yeah. It's Glasgow's Hellgate. And so I kind of said that. This, oh, here we are at the starting point. This is Glasgow's Hellgate. And everyone started laughing. 
And I thought, oh, this is good. Yes. You know, humor can connect yeah. to people. And so he ended up going way over short. So he ended up doing this like two and a half hour walk that kind of went up Buchanan Street and then kind of hung a left and eventually got into Central Station. We, we, we stopped in Central and, uh, and I left everyone there. And this um, uh, kind of um, elderly Glaswegian lady grabbed my arm at the end and she was in tears and said, Son, son, you've completely transformed the way I look at Glasgow. Thank you so much. And I was really touched. I'm not and, surprised. And, and meanwhile, on this route with my, my partner and my mum, my mum's sitting standing there because she's a school teacher. No, don't talk to the buildings, talk to the audience. It's like, okay, mum, I will. And, and so it's like, you know, training and how to, how to do a walk. And that was kind of, yeah. It was kind of after that point I thought, yeah, I'm definitely, I'm here amongst my people. I belong to Glasgow, yes. and Glasgow uh, belongs to it's me. It's true because I mean, yeah. it, and it's also because it does it does remind me of Hong Kong in so many ways because Glaswegians are real salt of the earth, and the Cantonese in in Hong Kong are real salt of the earth too, and you know they know how to party. So yeah. you know, that's that's critical too. Well, it's, it's strange because <laughs> the only times I've ever been in Hong Kong, the, the first time I was delighted and surprised to meet a Glasgow tram. Yeah, I know, absolutely. Uh, it's still yep. running. Yep, uh, yep. They, uh, one they, of the coordination they, trams. Yeah, they do, they did mm. all wind up in Hong Well, quite a lot of them, quite a lot of them were burnt, but yeah. um, others of them did wind up in Hong Kong. And the, the other is, amazing thing was getting yeah. in the Star Ferry and seeing a, mm-hmm. a Glasgow maker's absolutely. plate. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, everyone, else, yeah. everyone else is admiring the scenery and taking photographs. I know, I know. And I'm yeah. walking around staring at bits of machinery Uh-oh. looking for <laughs> Glasgow marks. I see, I used to do that too, because the Star Ferry was dirt cheap. Um, but you could nip across between the island and um, Kowloon side mm. on it, and all the tourists went on the upper deck. But it's like, nah, he's no. interested in the upper deck. You go to the lower deck because you get to see all the machinery. It's, so it's, it's much more interesting. It's, it's, it's a bit like going in the Waverley and going to it's see exactly, the engines. <laughs> indeed, it's exactly the same. Yeah, great, great fun. Yeah, I miss miss all the stuff like that. So, and yeah, I suppose that when I'm thinking about Glasgow, the first night I spent in here um, in Glasgow, uh, that is, it's back in 1989. Um, I could. There was a ferry that tooted its horn on the yeah. Clyde, and I thought, aha, Harbour City, I could live here. No, but I've never heard a ferry toot its horn on the Clyde. And it's, 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 it's one of these strange things because uh, my grandfather, who was born in Aberdeen in 1886, and had been four times around the world under sail before he was 21, right. ended up being a chief engineer out uh-huh. of the Clyde, 30 years in the Eastern Mediterranean, run six weeks away mm-hmm. down to. Yeah, Israel, well, obviously it was at that point it was pre-Israel, right. but right away down to the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, and I grew up with him living in the house. And when mm-hmm. I was wee, one of the great treats every Hogmanay, apart from the fact that Grandpa would give you a cigar and a dram when you were about eight, <laughs> uh, you were allowed to stay up till midnight. <clears throat> and at midnight, he'd rush you out into the garden. Mm-hmm. And he'd, at that point, there was still a lot of shipping in the Clyde. Yeah, you could hear all And you'd hear yep. all the ships, hooters and bells and everything going... And my grandpa always said the amount of New Year's that he'd spent mm-hmm. in foreign ports mm-hmm. when he was all alone and he was the only man in the ship. Mm-hmm. And he said, tonight in Glasgow, there's shipmates from mm-hmm. all over the world alone in those ships. So yeah. raise a glass to your shipmates. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's one of those, I mean, I still do it every year. I dash out at midnight thinking, am I going to hear a ghostly hooter? <laughs> uh, and it's it such a shame. There were really suggestions is. this year that the... The two cruise liners mm-hmm. uh, that are down in the is it King George V docks yes. yeah. might have done their hooters, but whether the wind right. was in the wrong direction you or not, and you 
the amount of fireworks it's now at midnight. It really is. So you can't you hear him. You need to get ships back on the Clyde somehow. Even just some hooters. Can't just some hooters. <laughs> so anyway, fast, fast forward. Yeah. I mean, I was still at that point thinking about being a commercial architect. Um, and then mysteriously managed to win this competition for um, what was going to be Glasgow and Scotland's tallest building, which was where the Scottish Power Building now is on um, uh, St Vincent Street. And so that was called Elphinstone Place. And uh, yeah, it was on the back of that, it was originally going to be three towers and we called it the Trinity Project to begin with in the office. And um, we had to do wind tunnel testing for it because if you're building a tall mm-hmm. building, you can't make the wind conditions around your building any worse than they currently yeah. are. That planning is that that's not allowed. So we had to do wind tunnel testing. So it turned out the design was an absolute disaster <laughs> from kind of wind tunnel testing. And uh, it was standing in, so we had to build this whole kind of um, scale model of Glasgow city centre. And this was working with our um, engineers. And there were only two places in the world that kind of did this at, the, at this point. Um, one of them was in London and the other one was in Toronto. So we were, we were at the, the wind tunnel in, in, in London. And we had to basically do 92 different runs to end up with a solution that actually worked in wind terms. Because it turned out it was one of um, uh, Glasgow's big firms of solicitors was in the building right next door. And the wind conditions that that would knock you off your feet. And yeah. we're thinking, hmm, could possibly get sued. Possibly. It might not be a good idea. Possibly. So we had to kind of rethink the whole thing. And so it was while I was doing that, and I'm like standing in, in the standing in this wind tunnel, looking at the scale model of Glasgow city centre, and everything's pretty low rise in Glasgow. And the engineer from Arabs is saying, yeah, Glasgow's actually really well designed from the point of view of wind, because kind of the, that four-story datum of tenements actually works really well in kind of defect, deflecting winds. And what, what you're doing is basically bringing the winds down into the city centre. And I'm looking at this tall building thinking, what have I done? You know, and had this complete road to Damascus <laughs> conversion, thinking this is not what I want to do with my life. I want to go more into kind of conservation. And so ultimately, that's kind of what, what, what I ended up doing. Um, I got made redundant from a big firm of architects in 2011 and got snapped up straight away by um, a friend of mine, Peter Drummond, who's one of Scotland's top conservation architects, and retrained as a conservation architect. And while I was doing that, was getting invited in here to give lectures on occasion. Yeah. And then the, the post of kind of grants officer came up here. And um, uh, the then director just asked me if I'd be interested. And I had to apply with along with everybody else. And, and I thought, ah, I don't know, you know, really, I've really enjoyed being an architect, but maybe it's time for something different. I'll give this a go for six months. And I absolutely loved it because it was links, it was the like educational part of it, you know, being able to connect, connect with people and see what you do to help people about, you know, what was happening with their buildings or explain why something has you know, happened a particular way in Glasgow or how the city has developed a particular way. So it was be- being able to kind of apply my skill set to things like that. So from that point of view, it was absolutely dream job. Absolutely loved loved working here. <laughs> so it was a good good fit. And it's funny, I knew various kind of politicians at the time, and they were all kind of having a good laugh, saying, "Oh, you're a square peg in a square hole. Well done, you." And well, that's, that's, a, that's a good good fit for you. So yeah, I've really enjoyed it ever since. Fabulous. Now, during lockdown, when we're all holed up like moles. Uh, you started tweeting, tweeting mm-hmm. about Glasgow's architectural heritage using the hashtag Moments of Beauty in Glasgow. And you've amassed a huge number of followers with that. Uh, obviously not quite as many as Lost Glasgow has. Uh, can you tell us... That's modestly. I know, I know. <laughs> Banging my own drum here. Banging my own drum here. 
can you tell us a bit about that? I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I, I follow it and have done things since earliest days. And again, I think in Glasgow, and then you pick out some tiny, almost unseen detail in a building, uh-huh. and I'll think, why have I not noticed that yeah, before? Spot, spotted that, yeah. It's it's good because there's kind of a sort of bunch of folk who kind of like do that kind of thing. So it's always interesting to see what people come up with. Um, but no, the tweeting was a complete accident. That was, and I was actually getting completely slagged off by um, Stuart McDonald MP and Paul Sweeney, he's now an MSP, yeah. and the two of them were completely slagging me off going, come on, Neil, get into the 21st century, how come you're not on social media? And it was like, mm, you know, things like Twitter and stuff like that, to me, it was like so easy to trip yourself up, and I was thinking, oh, that'd be career, Just ask Gary career, career suicide, <laughs> Just you know, it's so a good idea. And then it was one day, um, unfortunately I suffer from, from poor lung health because of having grown up in Hong Kong and the pollution there was really bad and I've had pneumonia three times, sadly, and I've wound up apparently with lungs that would, would suit a smoker and I've never smoked. So, oops. Anyway, just one of the things in life. So um, after the third time I had pneumonia, I decided I was going to start walking into the city centre and try and use that to get kind of get fit. So I was walking into the city centre down the South City Way one day, and this this um, I won't name the bus company, but this particular bus who were sponsoring it was like World Kind of Pollution Day that day to kind of like you know stop you know yeah. bad emissions and everything. And their bus with this advert on it sponsoring this damn thing sails past me, belching out like you know black diesel smoke. black smoke <laughs> down the South City Way, and I was like, uh. This is ridiculous. And um, kind of got in, got into the office and kind of checked their website, and I could not find a phone number for complaints because I was so angry about mm-hmm. it. It was like this is outrageous, and um, and it was Taylor in the office said, "Why, why didn't you try tooting?" And I was so mad that I kind of forgot all my kind of like you know don't yeah. ever do this kind of thing and thought I am gonna I'm gonna and so she showed me I said so you know tweets so and link, I just kind of them. that was that was the first thing I did was like. Ugh how could you do this? That's a disgrace. And then uh, was able to kind of, um, you know, um, uh, copy it to several of Glasgow's kind of politicians. And then it kind of took off from there kind of quite accidentally. And it was when um, when lockdown started, I just t- started deciding I was going to do a tweet a day of kind of my walks around uh, the south side. And then uh, it was funny because then the south side got, kind of started getting quite busy. And I was supposed to be shielding. And then the irony was that um, my shielding letter turned up like six weeks late, um, by which point I'd been like out and about all over the place. And the shielding letter is saying, you know, can't get within two metres of an open window. And I thought, oh my God, it can be turned into Rapunzel. And, you know, <laughs> I don't want to do that. So I just carried on walking. And in the end, I kind of um, shifted over to the city centre because there was nobody in the city centre. It was, it like was completely, it's, completely it's, deserted. It's, it's strange because even though... Yeah, ninety nine percent of Lost Glasgow is still Facebook based. Yeah, uh, but I was about the same during lockdown because even though we had a Twitter account, yeah, I hadn't really used it that much. Mm-hmm. And during lockdown, it became an absolute lifesaver. Yeah, and all of a sudden, before you know it, you know, one minute you've got a thousand followers, and you're like three days later, you're like seven thousand. Where did they come from? What happened? And all of a sudden, you built almost like a secondary community yeah. Yeah. that would never be in Facebook. Yeah, but are on Twitter. Yeah, uh, and it's, 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 I mean, it's and it's been it's, a learning experience for me as well. It really is. I mean, it's 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 the, the, the point of thing. And I was just kind of I was trying to limit myself to, and I still do try and limit myself to a tweet a day. Mm-hmm. So I kind of figured out 
um, that like seven o'clock in the morning is my time to tweet. And it means I can either set up the, the night before or like, because well, I'm always getting woken up my cats at stupid o'clock in the morning and I can't get back to sleep again. So I, I will set up a tweet then and then it goes out at seven o'clock in the morning on the door. And I just try and find a different thing every day to have a bit of fun about it. But the point of it is to kind of raise civic pride in, in Glasgow and show that Glasgow is a really beautiful city because it is. And so I was just having a lot of fun with that. And I was trying to encourage people to go out for, for walks during lockdown. And so it initially started in Pollock Shields and just, you know, random stuff in Pollock Shields. If I, saw, yeah, yeah. if I saw something interesting in the building and I knew a bit of history to the building, I would just talk about that. And it got picked up by, it was Janice Forsyth, firstly, who picked it up at the BBC. And then it was, um, I got it, it interviewed by, is it John Beatty on yes. um, BBC Drive Time as well, yeah. which got good fun. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Janie Godley started retweeting yeah. me, and that was like really sweet of her. And I'd love to meet her. And um, so it's just kind of sort of went, went from there. And it's, it's just been really good fun. But it has this kind of serious purpose that is to get people out and about and, and make them look at Glasgow's you know, fantastic architecture and be able to appreciate it. Well, it is also that. Thing. I mean, Glasgow is, is such a wonderfully walkable city. Oh, totally. And yet, so often you know, we jump in our cars yeah. or we jump, we jump in a bus or a if you jump in a bus, yeah, you look up and down the bus, and nobody's looking out the window. If yeah. the window is clean enough to look out, yes. they've all got their noses buried in their phones. And you think, look, look what <laughs> you just passed, <laughs> or better still, walk it and stop and actually appreciate yes. what, what yeah. you're in. And you get back to that grid system thing again. Uh, absolutely, Glasgow's grid's fantastic it's, it's for walking. Absolutely lovely for walking. Yeah, and particularly the, the east-west accesses. Yes, accesses. Yes, uh, where you get. Yeah, one day you're getting spectacular sunrise over there, mm-hmm. and that evening spectacular sunset at the end of, yes. the, yeah. end of the same road. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And, and it's it also the fact that you can, I know myself from looking at historic photographs of Glasgow, mm-hmm. it means the tall buildings work almost like the gnomons mm-hmm. on a sundial. Yes. So you can almost work out exactly yeah. Yeah. what time of day. You might not know what year the photograph was taken, yes. but you can work out what yeah. time of day by the direction you, you and the length of the shadows. Yes. And yeah. that's, it, it's almost like looking at a clock face. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's quite completely different from living in the tropics because the sun was directly overhead quite mm-hmm. a lot. Um, but Glasgow, really long shadows on particular days, which are really quite, quite fabulous. And Glasgow sunsets are phenomenal. Oh, they, really, sometimes really, just absolutely, absolutely superb. <laughs> so the quality of light that you get kind of on the West Coast is, is wonderful. And I also love the uh, doing the water and, um, just kind of the, the Clyde estuary is so beautiful. And again, this is another parallel with Hong Kong because um, in Hong Kong, you know, you're living in a kind of set of ar- ar- you know, an archipelago effectively mm-hmm. off the Pearl River estuary. And it's really, really similar to the Firth of Clyde. Um, and like, the various people as well. Um, uh, Fiona Sinclair, who we've just interviewed in this podcast, she thinks I'm completely mad for this. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I'm telling you, Fiona, it's really similar to the landscape around Hong Kong because you came, you, you know how you get those kind of windswept trees. That, like, I, I must, I must admit, I, I, I love that. I mean, I've done enough, not for a long time, but enough walking and hiking in the west coast of Scotland, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you'll come across a wind blasted Scot Scots pine, yeah. and it's it's almost like a Japanese watercolor. Yes, you yeah, know, it's almost like one of these Japanese wood block yes. prints. Yeah, and you just think, hang on, this yeah. 
Yes, I've seen this before, and it's it's not a Scottish artist. I'm looking at a hawker side. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But then that that will that touches on all these fantastic because Glasgow was a great trading city. Yes, that all these great international connections, which is why you get things like the Glasgow Star. When you look at what Charles Rennie Macintosh and James Sowen Jr. Mm-hmm. are doing, there is incredible Japanese, Japanese influence, which yeah. is what's coming back with the Glasgow Boys. Yeah. You know, coming back with bringing all these kind of you know Japanese art back from mm-hmm. from um, Japan. And it's, you can see all those connections. And that's what I like about Glasgow. It's, it's this kind of incredible hybrid. And you don't get that in ter- terribly many places. But mm-hmm. it makes it really, really fascinating. I mean, it is, it is, it's that River City thing. I mean, the, mm. the, the Clyde, I mean, I, I regularly bang on about it in talks. The, the Clyde was our original information yeah. superhighway. No, abs- absolutely. Ev- ev- everyth- everything that was good in Glasgow mm-hmm. went out to the world via the Clyde. Yes. And everything that was good bad and indifferent in the world yeah. came back to Glasgow up the to- Clyde. To- totally, <laughs> totally. And this is where, I mean, this is, again, where it's my sort of fascination with Glasgow's history um, and where you look where the grid came from because I think, you know, you get this this um, kind of cliche that's kind of the, the Glasgow kind of grid, the grid to America, um, which I've never entirely bought because I think it was the other way around. It's, one, it's one of these strange things that I, I do know that the city fathers of Chicago, mm-hmm. after the Great Fire of yeah. Chicago, destroyed yes. pretty well the entire centre of mm-hmm. Chicago, mm-hmm. Uh, did visit Glasgow yes. and looked at the grid system. Yeah, they did how, the same thing. However, right the however, they spent a year and visited every other major city in Europe <laughs> at the same time. It sounds like a, a wonderful console jolly, yes. if you know what I mean. Yeah, so yeah. For, so we for did, Glasgow we, we to did claim, the same thing. For Glasgow <laughs> to claim... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We are Chicago or we invented the good system. And I think I think it's the because when you look at how um, you know, after um, the kind of um, the Jacobite rebellion, how the city takes off after that, mm-hmm. um, when you look at Americans um, sorry, um, Glasgow's connections to the American colonies and the, the eastern seaboard and you know, all the way down to the Indies as well, and you see all the small settlements that are springing up where the tobacco um, lords the apprentice tobacco lords were all had to be based in those yeah. settlements to know their market. They're bringing back all those ideas to mm-hmm. to Glasgow. That's that's where it's all to do with commerce. Yeah, it's you know it's a mercantile city. It is not kind of a major governmental city, or you know has, doesn't have palace in it. Yeah. Um. So it's not that kind of thing. It's it's a pure mercantile city. So having a grid like that is a completely commercial and pragmatic thing to do. But what makes Glasgow? Um, more interesting than the American cities, I think, is because you know you do get that initial very kind of harsh grid, Tight grid. Um, on Blyther Square, which is kind mm-hmm. of a, that, that's kind of the ultimate evolution of Glasgow Square. Because obviously you've got earlier grids that extend out from 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 Trongate and High Street. Um, by the time you get to the West End and the parts of the South Side, the grid is being adapted to the landscape. You're getting crescents introduced, and it's all becoming softer and more organic. And so I think that's really interesting too, because you see it developing in a completely different way mm-hmm. from how the very ruthless way it developed yeah. in the United States. So and it gives Glasgow a kind of richness and kind of greater sense of identity. I kind of like the way that the grid sort of almost like freeze around the edges. Yes. If yeah. you know what I mean, all of a sudden you all of a hang on, that road's going off that way, and that's that's yeah. that's not a right angle. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That and how. Um, and I know people aren't necessarily fans of the motorway, and I'm not much of a fan of it myself, but I do think that the way that Glasgow as a city is kind of an overlay on kind of a medieval, post-medieval city, 
and then you get the kind of Georgian city appearing, and then you get the Victorian city appearing, and then you get the Edwardian city, and then the war city, and then, yeah, again, this modernist city, all kind of superimposed on top of each other. It's not like Edinburgh, where you get the old town, and then they make this decision yeah. to, you know, have the, the, the new town, town on the other side of the Norloch. Um, you know, so the, the, the two didn't yeah. mix and have these completely different characters. <laughs> yeah, Glasgow's, Glasgow's different. It's all superimposed, and that's what makes it such a fantastic cinematic city. So I find all that really, really interesting. So moving on to the podcast, uh, and I realise this is the, the last episode of, of Two Serious. Yes. How have you found working on it? I mean, obviously you don't have any trouble speaking to folk, but <laughs> myself. Is there anything in particular that has stuck with you, struck you or stayed with you from the conversations you've had across the two series? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the two, two episodes in particular. And the first one was uh, talking to Doc, Dr. Jeff Meek about um, kind of mapping queer Glasgow, and also, which also touched on Scotland as well, um, because I had this kind of revelation halfway through that because uh, it was from a personal side of things. And that kind of, it was, it was a bit kind of, it was a horrific revelation about my family, which kind of slightly disturbed me. But, um, and I was having it in the middle of this, of this kind of podcast, and it was like, but not sure my emotions at this point. And that was, um, we were talking about um, James Sadir, who was a prosecu- prosecutor in Glasgow, who sat on the Wolfenden Committee mm-hmm. in the kind of 1950s, which was the thing that ultimately led to the kind of legalisation of um, homosexuality in England, though it doesn't happen because of him in Scotland until the early 1980s. And it was we were having this discussion about him and various people around him, and one of whom was William Merrilies, who was this very famous policeman in Edinburgh, in the city of Edinburgh Police, and I had this sudden thought because my granddad on my mum's side was uh, was a sergeant in the city of Edinburgh police, mm-hmm. and and I really loved my granddad who was a real kind of a, I really looked up to him, and I had this sudden thought, hmm, I bet my granddad knew this guy because this guy was he was as height in the nineteen fifties and he conducted a war on um, kind of Edinburgh's gay community. Yeah. And was you know arresting people, and it was a real, real awful time for kind of repression. And there's a, a, a really good book, um, Peter Wildblood, who um, it's he writes this book against the law at the time, which and he ends up being one of the people who's witness to the Wolfenden Committee. And it's all about how he was. It was. It was basically it was like a sting operation which arrested him, and kind of it was on the basis of these letters that were written between him and this RAF airman that he was in, he was having a relationship with, which were found on an RAF base, I think, and um, kind of thereby exposed mm-hmm. him and he was arrested on that basis and several of his friends were arrested too and he ended up being flung to prison. But he got an awful lot of public sympathy because all he was doing was he was in love with somebody. I mean, you know, what's the harm in that? Um, but there was this real atmosphere of repression and, and I wondered, you know, did did my grandfather know this guy? And afterwards went and spoke to my mother and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. he was, he was, um, they were friends and my grandfather knew him very well. And, and it all made sense because when I did come out in the nineties to my parents, both of whom had been completely fantastic and I've been really lucky from that point of view, what they did say to me was don't tell your granddad. <laughs> and I never quite understood why yeah. would I not want to tell them, you know, someone that's so key in my kind of life, why would I not want to say anything? And it wasn't until years later that I've realised that was that why. Was... Because they would say, he will reject you. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want that kind of blow. 
And that was it. And it was because, and, and at the same time, you know, you can say, well, that's, that's, you know, we must have been an awful person. But that was the context at the time, was that there was this whole thing going on. And he was, you know, the police, not very liberal, yeah. <laughs> and still have problems, still, obviously. Still problems so um, he, was, he was part of that context. And, you know, you can't just divorce people from that kind of, the, what, what, you know, that context that they're in. So it's just, it was a horrible realisation. So, but it, it happened right in the middle of the podcast. So I kind of like, <laughs> n- never really forgotten that one. So that was kind of, that was interesting from a kind of personal point of view. And then the other one I really enjoyed was, was talking to um, uh, Reverend Dr. John Harvey and, um, the, and uh, Stuart from the... Um, Stuart Baird from the... Yeah, Stuart Baird from the... The, um, the Motorway what, Archive. The, what was the Motorway Archive is now the Scottish Roads mm-hmm. Archive. Um, and I really enjoyed that discussion. And particularly, there was kind of, um, it got kind of, we weren't quite sure whether to stop it at the end because there'd been a technical issue. And so we just carried on talking between the three of us. And it was really interesting because um, uh, the Reverend Dr. John Harvey was kind of like, he was in his, his late 80s, sharpest attack. And he had been one of the, the Glasgow group. Yeah. Um, who'd done all this fantastic work and you know very religious based but had uh, done this fantastic work in the, in the Gobles and I'd been asking him he lived in Abbotsford Place and so I'd been asking him about you know what it was like to live through the clearances in the Gobles you know what the poverty in the Gobles had been like what it was like to kind of live through the shattering of this community had they resisted at all and um, and he said yes that they had gone and spoken to you know and, and, and made petitions to the city and asked them to think again that you know they were going to destroy this community and the Gobbles, when you look at it it's yeah obviously there was real poverty at that time um and not helped by you know the first of all you know after after the first world war when you get the, the rent strikes and mary barber and obviously that's mm-hmm. a good thing because of them, they were being exploited but when the kind of the, the cap was put on rents then and it stops things like the factoring profession and um investment in tenements and the maintenance of tenements and then the owners basically just kind of you know um uh shared the responsibilities towards the maintenance of tenants which is why um, the tenements in glasgow by the 1950s are in such a bad way because they haven't had you know maintenance for the best part of four decades mm-hmm. and are not in a good way and that's why so many of the owners then sell them off to the individual people's living in yeah. the flats and you get this kind of fractured ownership which is something we're still dealing with dealing now with today, yeah. um because the buildings were never meant to be like that originally. They were built for rent rather than for ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something we're still trying to deal with. So, But with areas like the, the, the Gobles, effectively, they were the equivalent of what happened in the United States with redlining. Yeah. And so I was really interested in that point about, because I'd, I'd come across um, uh, Dr. Uh, Mindy Fulilove, um, who's name? this um, fantastic <laughs> name, who's this African-American... Um, uh, soci- sociologist and um, so it was her she was doing this whole analysis of this African American community in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. that had been destroyed which had a really vibrant community which had major links to jazz and it had been destroyed by um, the, the, the authorities in Pittsburgh and um, they rebuilt it as a convention centre and with this huge motorway running through it and I was thinking oh my god the parallels with Glasgow are fascinating and they discovered that Glasgow had sent a delegation to go and have a look at it. And I'm thinking, oh, could you imagine now yeah. sending, well, let's go and have a delegation to look at the kind how, of the, how, the how, redlining how, and removal of an African-American community. Yeah, absolutely. 
just completely horrific. And that was exactly what happened with Goebbels. And the authorities had made up their mind that they were getting rid of it. Nobody was going to change their mind. And so this whole part of the city was just wiped from the face of the map. And the community, you know, shattered and Artized. spread to the... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which I just think is such a, has been such a disaster for the city. And... Um, and I do think that this is one of the reasons why Glasgow suffers from you know, poor, poor urban health is because, because it's exactly what Goodwin's Law moment coming up, what the Nazis did with, with Warsaw. Mm-hmm. That it was about destroying yeah. you know, the culture of a place to destroy um, people's sense of self. And inadvertently, we ended up doing that to ourselves in this you know, idea of urban renewal. And rather than invest in the building and the infrastructure of the, the neighbourhood, it was just like, we'll start again. And it is, it is going back to your, your early point about enjoying and living and working in Berlin. Mm. It's that, I've, I've always found it that very strange thing when I've visited German cities that were almost wiped off the yeah. map during the Second World War, and yet they managed to restore... Yes. Particularly their old towns. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Al- almost did. as was, but with new infrastructure and better facilities yes. and all the rest of it. And yet Glasgow, which escaped pretty well unscathed, yeah. apart from a few individual stray hits mm-hmm. during the Second World War, as soon as the Second World War is over, we set about doing the I work know. that the Luftwaffe yes. didn't do. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, on the other hand, you can appreciate when you when you you know look at all the statistics that Glasgow had major problems at the time. You know the overcrowding is really bad mm-hmm. compared to any other UK city. We were we were an order of magnitude worse. But you know you could have you could have thinned out the population. You didn't have to destroy the actual mm-hmm. fabric of the city to do that. Yeah, I mean, it was all, and it's you almost that built people better. Yeah, exactly. people better homes. And you could have had a much more sensitive kind of conservation surgery approach to, mm-hmm. to the whole thing, like what Patrick Geddes was, was, was promoting in Edinburgh, um, you know, back in the Victorian times. You could have had mm-hmm. something, a much more sensitive approach to it. You didn't have to throw everything out. But there's this whole kind of worship of the car. The car is a machine. It doesn't feel, you know, people need environments that are going to nourish them, not something that's going to, like, prioritise the car. It's, so sorry, it's, my, it's, my, no, it, my feelings about that are going to get it, in the way. It, it, it ch- uh, chimes in particularly <laughs> with a lot of things I think about. I mean, there are obviously the talk at the moment about 15-minute cities yes. and yeah. all the rest of Glasgow it. Glasgow was, was built as a 15-minute mm-hmm. city. So you've got the city centre. You had roughly 700,000 people living kind of within a mile of the, the city centre. So it was incredibly mm-hmm. dense, twice the density of London at the time. Um, and that's why you get things like you know the strength of the theatres, the Empire Theatre, because they could get audiences. People wanted to be they escape from their yeah, lives. They and the entertain. Yeah. So you got all of those things on the back of that. Now it's operating at a third of the you know yeah. the, the density of London. How do we manage to kind of scatter people so? And it also far about, it sort of drives back again to the you know, the building of the M8, yeah. where Glasgow ends up with the largest inner city motorway system yeah. in Europe. Yes. And yet Glasgow per capita mm-hmm. has perhaps the lowest car ownership Absolutely. of any city in yep. Europe. And has the worst well, you know, the worst health problems. The worst health problems. <laughs> so <laughs> yep, so active living, things like that, you know, they do, do help. So I do think about those kind of things. And 
That's one of the reasons why I'm interested in Glasgow's tenemental neighbourhoods in particular, because they were 15-minute cities. And it's weird how mm-hmm. suddenly 15-minute cities has become a culture war yeah. kind of thing. It's like, where did this come from? People have been talking about this since, like, you know, the 1990s, yeah. not well, 1980s. Yeah, it's like planned gardens, <laughs> and, suburbs, and all this. I know, and suddenly it's become a culture war thing. It's like, where did that come yeah. from? Yeah, who, do, who doesn't want a nice cafe, a nice I bar? Know. yeah, exactly. Good public transport. Why, why, why would you enjoy that? How is that so? No, I demand evil. to be allowed to drive 15 miles across the <laughs> yeah. city. Oh, it's very, very odd. And so. it's, it's, it's also, a, a, I mean, it's you know, the working from home thing during COVID. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I know a, I've certainly got to know my own area mm-hmm. so much better during that because I have been out walking about. Yes. Oh, there's a new cafe opened. Yeah, exactly. Go in and try this stuff and speak yeah. to the folk behind the counter. Yes. And before you know it, three weeks later, you're walking down the road and somebody says hello to you and you go, oh, that's the guy from the cafe. Yes. And yeah. before you know it, you've got that nice mesh. Yeah. And it's not so much a support network. It's just that lovely, you're embedded. It's a feeling, yeah, it's a feeling of, com- of community and being embedded in community. Mm-hmm. And I have been very community-focused. I mean, joined things like Polish Shows Community Council, um, got involved in things like Govan Hill Baths, yeah. you know, which you know to me is like incredibly important. Well, it's, 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 it's one of these things, I mean, I know, I know you're a member of the Trust, uh, but I, 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 in my early more sort of radical years, I was very much one of the occupiers. <laughs> <laughs> See, I love that. I, 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 it's all about working. I mean, they have yeah. such a fantastic archive um, to do with kind of working class heritage, which yes. I think is incredibly important. So that's Paula Larkin, who's kind of been really been leading on that. But mm-hmm. I really admired the community trust. So I've ended up being the, the chair of the building preservation mm-hmm. trust part because I'm yeah. a conservation architect. So I've ended up being the chair of that. So we're actually leading on the physical rebuilding mm-hmm. project. Um, but the community trust getting over, I was the chair of the community trust mm-hmm. at one point. And I did kind of sort of remark to them, are you sure I'm the right yeah. person for this? You know, kind of middle-aged balding. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, at the time, a little bit rotund. So kind of, you know, sort of jokingly sort of said that. And I said, no, 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 you know, we want, want you to be chair. And I said, okay, fine. So the first thing I did was I ended up kind of going on the diet because I thought oh, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's not the right perception. It's kind of like, if anyone can do it, um, you know, I'm going to show if I can do it, anyone can do it. So I kind of did that, which was good. Get to your fighting um, weight. Yes, exactly. So, exactly. So, so, but yeah, it's been a really interesting project to be in, involved. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm like still very sort of peripherally, peripherally involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one, one, one of the joys of it has been meeting up with Bruce Downey. Mm-hmm. Oh, Bruce uh, is great. Who has written two absolutely fabulous books mm-hmm. and is now doing, I think, walking tours and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Uh, oddly enough, I recently was asked very much last minute uh, the Australian version of Who Do You Think You Are? Mm-hmm. You know, the family mm-hmm. yeah. genealogical thing. And it was a guy who's very well known in Australia, mm-hmm. but he's got connections to Govan Hill. Right. Uh, so Bruce had him out filming one day in Govan Hill, showing him the tenements where his, mm-hmm. his grandparents and parents had grown up. Uh-huh. And the next day I got to take him to the school that his right. father and his two uncles went to. Right. Fantastic. And of course they've still got the record books wow. going way back to the 1920s, uh-huh. uh, showing you what, what they'd done right that day, what they'd done... Six of the belt today. <laughs> no explanation. <laughs> just six of the belt today, uh, and it's it's lovely because again it, it links into that idea of knowing where you are in the city and being embedded in mm-hmm. your own your own corner of the city. And Glasgow, God, as you know, probably mm-hmm. more than most, Glasgow as a city 
is this small thing north of the river. Mm-hmm. Everything else that we consider Glasgow is villages yeah. that have been yeah, subsumed up, by the city. subsumed yeah. by this monster that is now yes. Glasgow. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you meet somebody out with Glasgow and you hear a Glasgow accent mm-hmm. and you ask them, where are you from? They don't say Glasgow because they've heard your accent. You both know you're from Glasgow. Yes. So you say where you're from. Yes. I'm from Shawlands, I'm from yeah. Govan Hill, I'm yeah. from Parton, I'm from Finiston. Yeah, I'm, I'm from Easter House. Yeah. I'm from, I'm from Govan, I'm from the Gorbals because you pin each other down and as soon as somebody says I'm from Govan, you say, you don't maybe know so-and-so, so-and-so. And <laughs> before you know it, there's this spider's web yes, of six yeah. degrees of separation that runs through the city. Yes, yeah, which I also really enjoy as well. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, yeah, Glasgow's a great place. It's good, it's good fun. And, yeah, that's what I like about it. And that's what makes it feel like home. So we're coming to, towards the end. I mean, there's a real theme of change, disruption and displacement across the conversations in all the podcast series. And this is like you know, the proverbial $64,000 question because we'll be probably talking about this one for the rest of the day. How do you feel the city has changed over the past 200 years? Uh, well, I suppose it, it brings me back to that point about, you know, and this is what I really like about Glasgow, and I feel it's a really cinematic city from that point of view, is that, you know, unlike the kind of the preciousness of Edinburgh, people in Edinburgh probably hate me for saying that, but Edinburgh is terribly precious. Glasgow's never been really precious about it, and it's always been kind of it has to see itself on the edge, and um, doing what's going to be kind of the next big thing. So yeah, it kind of has tended to go for kind of um, uh, great leaps forward and kind of white heat of technology yeah. solutions. Kind three of steps stuff. forward, so, two steps back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, but it is that kind of layering up of the city. I think is really fascinating. But it does mean that you know you do get you do get mistakes. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by the idea because I mean, you know, obviously, history isn't a static thing. Mm-hmm. It's always, you know, it's always ongoing. Cities are always about change, and you have to kind of deal with those kind of things. So it's all about kind of each generation adding something to to this to the city. Um, so I'm 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 very interested in that and how you do get this kind of layering up of different cities in Glasgow. So one of the things I'm interested in at the moment is kind of future conservation areas. Um, I was thinking about this with. Uh, con- Hold of the is it the Winford Winford I the Winford Estate Winford Estate yeah because Winford Estate actually when you look at it it's a real period piece now <laughs> so and I was seeing that as well um, we were down at the boathouse yesterday and there's the um, the huge um, RMGM towers kind of directly opposite yes. the Gobels that are on that kind of weird angle yeah because they are they're north south east west facing mm-hmm. whereas obviously Glasgow is not the same. And you're looking at them, and I remember seeing them. They were used in the, the BBC series The Nest a couple of years back. And I remember thinking then, and thinking again yesterday, that's a future conservation area. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the same with New Goals as well. The New Goals has been a fantastic piece of work. Um, and it's people have put a lot of thought into those areas. And I think those kind of things where you see that's actually that's actually a conservation area of tomorrow because it's really good work and it's really helped heal that part of the city. And yes, the the kind of the that rum jum scheme is a rupture in the city, but it has mm-hmm. its character. So and I find that really fascinating. And I mean that is what I like about Glasgow. You have these shifts in character. So it is literally that's what's cinematic, because you kind of like butt splice different bits of different yeah. cities together. And that's I think why 
um, you know, um, filmmakers enjoy Glasgow as a, as a city. And it's only, it was like fantastic last summer seeing it, you know, kitted out for uh, Indiana Jones part four. Yes, and, um, yes. Yes, the dial of destiny. Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that title. But, um, just, but, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I mean, it was. I, I was sort of coming in, in and out of the city a little bit. I think I'd just started uh, coming back into the office, I kept about one day a week. Mm-hmm. I, I remember like, one day coming out of uh, Central Station and cutting a, along Gordon Street across the, the Union Street, mm-hmm. Renfield Street, and looked up, and it was just like, oh God, it's, it's the 4th of July up there. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it was amazing. What a transformation. But Glasgow just has such an American appearance to it. Mm. And, you know, because of that, the grid. And also because of the, um, particularly after the, well, at, at the start of the First World War, you get this kind of whole wave of American classicism, mm-hmm. particularly under James Miller. Yeah. And um, it's just, you know, I, I, I love those aspects, that influence of the city. I suppose in terms of where it goes to next, and I'm interested in things like what's, what happens with George Gray, and I did this whole conservation management plan from George Gray, which hopefully will be getting published shortly. Um, but that was really interesting. What I decided to do when I was doing that, because I didn't think anyone had done it before, was actually track the different landscapes of the square and where the statues have been at different mm-hmm. points, because they're kind of referred to address about, you know, it, Glasgow, I was, I was Glasgow's it. stodgy statues a, a, moving a, about. A great and, game of chase. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh-huh. yes. So I decided, I decided to track all, all of the things like that. And yeah, the statues have moved at various points, particularly for the mm-hmm. cenotaph. Um, and also when the, the kind of the, the, the square, because it originally was kind of um, started off as kind of sort of no man's land with, without a real kind of defined idea of what people were going to do with it. Well, I mean, it, was, it was originally a swamp. Well, exactly. Drown dogs and, and slaughter then, horses. Then it becomes this kind of pleasure garden that's kind of planned by the guy who, who does the botanics, mm-hmm. who's the, the, the head gardener which, of the botanics. Which is fenced in, the locals exactly. kept tearing down the fences. Yep, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and ends up with this very grand kind of quite like Charlotte Square and St. Andrew mm-hmm. Square kind of fence around it, which ironically the city fathers paid for and took possession of it at the same time. So they actually had legal title to mm-hmm. it, not the owners of the townhouses who around the square who thought they did. And then in 1866, it's that that allows John Carrick to transform it into a kind of public square mm-hmm. when he's trying to find a location for... Um, uh, Prince Albert, the, the question monument to, to Prince Albert, and that's when Victoria moves into the square yeah. from kind of St Vincent Square. Yeah. And so it's like mapping all of those kind of the, the moves of all the the, the, the the monuments, which is really interesting. And I, I'm kind of interested to see where the square is going to go now because it's gone. It's it's kind of sort of peaks sort of between 1924 and sort of the 1950s, and then it's kind of downhill mm-hmm. thereafter, particularly in the 1990s when it gets really bad. Yeah. Um, so it's, I'm interested to see what's going to happen with the square. And that kind of what the council are doing at the moment with things like the Avenues program and introducing trees and kind of, um, you know, soft, softer landscapes in the city centre, I think is really interesting too. I remember there was a... Uh, a PhD student came in to talk to me um, a number of years ago now and wanted to know why there weren't really any trees in the city centre. And it was like, well, you just have to think about it. Glasgow was like a really polluted city. So that was going to go against the trees. Um, and then the second thing was that, you know, it's built for commerce. It's not built, it's not like, you know, Paris or... Yeah, it's not like that. So it's built for commerce. The trees would get in the way. So, I mean, you see these stray specimens from what were, you know, country roads, which have been urbanised, mm-hmm. and then they gradually die off and they never get replaced. Um, 
And so that's what it would be like that. So I think, you know, if, if we want to attract people back into the city centre, and this is kind of one of the problems with Glasgow post-COVID, is that Glasgow was the busiest city centre in the UK outside of the West End of London prior to COVID. But because Glasgow has a really good kind of transport network and it's very commutable, people don't necessarily have to come back into the city centre because you can work from home now. And so that's had a real impact on the city centre's economy. And it's about how we get that going again. It would be better if we actually encouraged some of those 700,000 people who ended up all leaving that area around the city centre to come back into it once more. And the only way you're going to do that is to get more amenity back into the city centre. So it's looking at things like with the Avenues Project, what they've done with Salty Hill Street, about getting trees you know, down the streets. And that that will really help soften some of the kind of the vistas. I mean, it's, it's that strange thing in Glasgow, you know, they do a green place. And Absolutely. And this is the city centre. All the, the lack of greenery. Yes, is, yeah. It's, we, we, have, we have the least greenery of any city centre in the UK now. Um, so it's about you know working some of that that back in and making it a kind of um, more pedestrianised, um, you know, friend, friendlier for kind of everybody, and getting a lot more planting back in. And I think that's going to have a phenomenal effect on the city, and it will make it more attractive. We have something like three and a half million square feet of upper floor space in the city centre, which is not in use. Yeah, which is lying empty. What what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. And that's not including the new buildings that are getting built. Which and I'm still puzzled why we're building such enormous new buildings when people are working from home. Yes, and it doesn't seem as though you know. I mean, I think that we're going to end up with a kind of hybrid scenario, um, but it doesn't seem as though people are kind of crying. I've, 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 I've got this horrible idea so, that they're actually going to make us live and work in our own office in the city centre. <laughs> It did my head in. Uh, yeah. You know, after, after a while, it was like it was okay for the first six months, and after a while, it was like, we need some space between yeah. work and home, not just like, and it's you, know, a, you know, yourself, it's, two it, minute it's, 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 it's not for the work, it's for the, the water cooler moments. Yeah. It's exactly. It's work, Chat, chatting with everybody yeah. in the office, and I, the, I miss, miss that camp. The city is a hive, it's yeah. a human hive. Absolutely. And having even just that good morning, yeah. how are you? Nice weekend, did you watch the football? Yes. Yeah. That human. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it's, I really miss. Critical. So it means things like, you know, I'm really frustrated with um, Royal Exchange Square at the moment, which should be a thriving European mm-hmm. square and is not. And I realise in part that's because, you know, a whole section of it has been basically left vacant, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a great shame. But that should be full of street cafes and full yes. of life and a real kind of hubbub. And it could be that throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And yet, just isn't operating to its potential at the moment, and it needs you know people to look at that, and we need to kind of get that character into a lot. Of it. I mean, it's ridiculous. I remember being out in the West End um, uh, just about a month ago, and Byers Road. Um, this was about talking back across Byers Road about eleven-ish, and Byers Road absolutely thrumming with people. Yeah, you know, couldn't move for folk. And getting on the subway back in the city centre in about you know um, twelve minutes or so. Getting out, George Square being pretty deserted, getting to the bar, so there'd be nobody around. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what is going on here? This is ridiculous. It's totally topsy turvy. Yeah. So we have to get people back in. It's that, it's that sort of donut effect yeah. as well, where you know, the city centre is busy during the week, yes. and then you know, yeah. every, every night, almost come five o'clock, yeah. there's a changing of the guard. Totally, all, totally. All, the, all the sort of sensible people go home to the outskirts. <laughs> and certainly during lockdown, it was, uh-huh. it was young people that came in basically took over the streets. Yeah. Uh, there, was, there, was one, there was one night um, I had to come into the office 
Um, and I'd suddenly realized this, that I needed this document for the next day. And it was a legal document, which were all in our archive. And so I had to come into the office. It was like nine o'clock at night. And I was like, don't worry, I'll be back as soon as I can. And there was like literally no one around. Mm-hmm. So I just legged it into the city center. There's no trains running. And legged it into the city center as fast as I could. And I was, I walked across the car park at um, St. Enos East and was like heading up past the 13th note. And it's like how you've got parallel streets. Mm-hmm. So I could see this whole crowd kind of walking down the high street. I'm thinking, it's nine o'clock at night. What are they doing? And, and all I was thinking, it was like, you know, the Warriors, that yeah. film in, 19, in Warriors, 1970s New York. I was thinking, oh my God, it's the Warriors. And like absolutely legged it to the office <laughs> to get inside thinking, I'm going to get mugged and like hell, because no one around. Uh, and, and yeah, that was, that was, that was a weird The zombie apocalypse. <laughs> it was like in Glasgow, it's the zombie apocalypse. So yeah, kind of keen to see people back in the city centre. And it is important because, you know, Glasgow's, city centre is one of the drivers of Scotland's economy and it should be seen as a national yeah. priority. So getting people back living in here and actually making those, the, the whatever you create here in terms of residential space attractive and desirable and for everybody, so yes. affordable for everything. I think that's absolutely key and how we go about doing it. Because class Glasgow is always going to be that mix yeah. of not, not just building types but social classes yes. and all the rest of it. Yeah. Living almost cheap by jowl. Uh, which you don't so much see in Edinburgh. Yes. Whereas Glasgow, I, I don't know whether it speaks more to our egalitarian spirit or simply the sort of organic development yeah. of Glasgow rather than the great planning development of Edinburgh. Yes. Things of are amorphous. Yeah. You in one minute you're you're in the most expensive bit of the West End and you turn two streets and you're actually in a pretty poor bit of Mary Hill. Yeah. Uh, and it's the same in the south side as yes. well. You, yeah. You, you, yeah. All of a sudden you turn the wrong corner and you think. How did I get here? Yeah. <laughs> which way? Like which way's north like from here? I, well, I like it as well because it gives it, it gives it com- completely different character. Mm-hmm. And it's much more for everyone. Yeah. So yeah, really value that. It's the it's the grit so that makes from peril. It's funny. I just I, I couldn't live in Edinburgh or something. Glasgow. It's nice for You're a very beautiful city. <laughs> hey, well, we're sort of drawing to a close here. Okay. And again, this is this is one of these killer questions. Do you remember when you asked me when you interviewed me? But I'm like, oh god, tables are really turning. Yeah, I know. I'm thoroughly enjoying watching you squirm here. So we've talked about all sorts of Glasgow buildings. Uh-huh. Uh, but what is your favourite building in Glasgow? And what would it tell us if oh its God, walls is, could talk? It's, it's such a loaded question. And honestly, my favourite building in Glasgow changes every five minutes. It's kind of new one every week. So when I first thought about this, um, there are obvious classics like I absolutely love, and it's such a shame what's happened, the West Elevation to the Glasgow School of Art, which is, yeah. you know, Macintosh's is absolute height. And I used to, one of the things about being in the architecture school in Mac is you've got these kind of huge windows that look onto mm-hmm. that. And seeing that and the kind of the sunrise, because we used to do all-nighters in the studios. Yeah. You can't do that now, apparently. Um, we yeah, used to do all-nighters in the risk. studios. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Funny that. And um, so everyone would like go out and get a pizza. It's kind of in the middle of the night. And then we'd all kind of like, we'd end up having a little dance party in the middle of the night to keep everyone's energy mm-hmm. up. And then you would watch the sunrise over the art school. And it was fabulous. And I, I wonder whether they do that now. Anyway, um, so that has been a favourite. Mm-hmm. But of course, after everything has happened, uh, just don't, don't want to think about no. it. Other things that have been really influential, the, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce this. Is, is it the Athenaeum Theatre or is it the Athenaeum? The Athenaeum. The Athenaeum. See, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce that. But the Athenaeum. So Burnett's 
Athenaeum extension I absolutely love. And that and I was lucky enough to see which, yeah, which is now the Hard Rock Cafe. Which is now the Hard Rock Cafe. I was lucky enough to be at the last performance in there by complete fluke. Mm-hmm. And that would mean such a good jazz club and it's kind of a, mm-hmm. a shame. Yeah, it's kind of got the got the stuffing knocked out of it. But there's still, you know, key features mm-hmm. are being saved at least, but all the kind of the auditorium and the seating and everything. It was, was, it was a, it was a beautiful smell. It was a lovely, lovely wee theatre, really beautiful. But from an architect's point of view, it's, that's a really interesting building because it's about the first time you can take a Georgian townhouse plot and then go high once you've got electricity to get lifts yeah. into buildings. So it's one of the very first lift buildings in Glasgow. But it's all also about how... Um, Burnett and his then partner, um, John Archibald Campbell, um, kind of handled the programme in the building because every floor has kind of a different purpose to it. Um, so you've got dining rooms, music rooms towards the top. Um, it's, a, it's a really fantastic building kind of programmatically. Um, and then you've got the lift, which is you know one of the first examples of a lift in Glasgow. And at the top of the building, he has this little tower of winds with wind gods around it. Which is like the lift going up and down. It's kind of like you know that's that's kind of it makes wind, and I think that's quite witty and funny. And the whole the, the narrative. I mean, it is a it is a, a an elitist building because mm-hmm. that narrative, this whole kind of classical narrative of kind of Athena, who's kind of the goddess of the arts and everything. You would only know that if you were kind of educated in that kind of thing. So it is quite elitist. But I like narratives and building. That's something that appeals to me. So that's been a favorite for a very long time. But my ultimate favorite would have to be Glasgow Central Station. But it's not so much a building, it's the space and the experience. So I just, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I think it's, it's amazing how, because it's, it's more, it's like, obviously the, the station was built over the top of Grahamston, um, the, the, the village that, that disappeared underneath and, and you yeah. know, allegedly survived, so it doesn't actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, there are a couple of buildings that are still, you know, there on Argyll Street and on Union Street, um, which come from the original village. Um, but it's the it's the, the space and it's the fact that you basically, because it's not, it's not a single building, it's a whole multitude of buildings that kind of form the urban block around it. And obviously you've got what's now um, Grand Central Hotel on the corner, which is supposed to be the landmark that identifies it within the city. But it's the fact that the Victorians somehow managed to conceal this enormous city with, uh, sorry, a station. Well, it's within, it's almost within a, a city block. within a city. It is. It's completely concealed. Mm-hmm. You would not know until you've seen kind of the Helaman's umbrella mm-hmm. um, that there is this enormous station sitting there kind of completely concealed within the heart of the city because they handle it so well. And if you look at, say, like a, a relatively modern example of sitting in the center, which I can't stand, um, and how that effectively internalizes mm-hmm. the city because it's got, it's got blank frontages all around, absolutely not way to handle it. You have to have active streets around it, which is what the Victorians did so well. Yeah. And I just love the whole concourse. It's the original kind of 18, 1879 to kind of 1885 uh, concourse. And then you've got the, the later, later 1900, yeah, 1900 extension by James Miller and Donald Matheson, um, which is a kind of subtly different character. But it's a very amorphous space. And then how um, both Donald Matheson and James Miller had this idea of making people kind of flow through the, the station as though it's a river and that you use these kind of organic curved pods, timber pods. To kind of you know mm. shift people, kind of make them flow towards the platforms. So I think it's a really beautiful moment, and it's just I mean it's kind of like the the um, Cunningham and Blythe trusses from the original concourse are really quite aggressive, kind of big. Mm-hmm. I think they're veranda trusses, 
Um, they're so matter-of-fact and kind of blunt. Um, but then the Donald Matheson has these kind of bow string trusses, which are much more elegant for the extension. But it's just this incredible organic space. And it's so lovely because you see all of life there. And whether you're coming into it during the day and it's a beautiful sunny day and you're getting this beautiful blue sky kind of over the space, which must be, um, it must, I assume it must be larger than George Ware, maybe it's not. Um, but it's one of the biggest kind of spaces. And mm-hmm. Technically, it's a public space. It's kind of public-private. I've yeah. taken taken tour groups in there before and been told off for doing it. You're very naughty. It's kind of like, you know, there's a yellow alert at the moment. What are you doing? Obviously, I'm in agree with you because when you asked me that question, yeah. I said Central Station. Did you? Oh, there you yeah. go. Wow. Uh, <laughs> but the wonderful thing that's, that's happened with uh-huh. Central Station just, just in recent years, I mean, the TV programme inside mm-hmm. Central Station, yes. which I've guested on a few times, Unfortunately, through that, I've got to know Paul and Jackie, the two mm-hmm. tour station guides. I really need to meet them. And they are just the most passionate, knowledgeable. They, mm-hmm. they, they know every brick. They know every story. They, they know every moat of dust that blows right. through. Right. And what they have done mm-hmm. around Central Station, I'm quite sure even 10 years ago, if somebody had said, you know, do you want to organise tours underneath Central Station? Yeah. Folk would have gone, there's no interest in that. And yet now their tours are booked up months mm, in advance. It's fascinating. Because everyone wants to yeah. know what goes down on underneath Central Station. The old platforms yeah. are amazing. I, I went to see them um, several, several years ago. Um, it is just, it's, most, it's the most wonderful space, even at night when you're coming into it, than when you kind of come in from the back of that huge advertising mm. screen and you can see the light from the advertising screen kind of cast over the concourse as you're coming in on the train. Yeah. It's a real Blade Runner-esque moment that I absolutely love because it's really cinematic. And then there was one morning a couple of months back when it was there was something weird going on with the weather and it was like... Uh, it was colder inside than it was outside because it had been really cold for a while and suddenly the kind of this this warm front came in and it was this weird moment where as I was leaving the close I realised there was condensation on the outside of the door which was a bit weird mm-hmm. and um, got into Central and it was like Central has its own microclimate and there was like mist in Central oh, which was bizarre <laughs> to see and it was like um, yeah completely amazing and just fascinating. I mean, it's such a fantastic space, and so many people in it. I, I, I really because it's like it is like a city in itself. I absolutely love it. It's my favourite moment in Glasgow. And it's that it's that strange thing you were talking about the quality of light. And yet, oh yeah, the quality is beautiful. Was growing up and coming through Central, it was always dark. Really, because during the war years, mm-hmm. they had painted black tar mm-hmm. across all the glass ceiling panes right, so okay. that it didn't show light to bombs. Right, and it was right. only in the early 1980s mm-hmm. when they added on the extra platforms and so forth right, that, that, that they actually off. scraped it all off. I didn't know And that. all of a sudden, right. the place, even in the brightest summer Sign day, again. you used right. to go into Central Station and all the lights would, yes, would be on. Yeah. Because yeah. there was no light coming from above, yeah. apart from the end of the, mm-hmm. the platforms. Right. And it was only when they took that off, all of right. a sudden you're just like, hang on, yeah, this I is know, how it's meant to be. One thing I've never seen a photograph of, which I really would like to see a photograph of, was apparently um, the champagne bar, the dome over the champagne bar was a stained glass dome. Uh-huh. Um, and it's been you know, turned into a plaster dome mm-hmm. subsequently. 
and that was that would make sense because James Miller also did all the, the kind of the liners, um, mm-hmm. the great great liners, and he was using Oscar Patterson for his stained glass on like the Lusitania. Mm-hmm. That was Oscar Patterson did the stained glass on the Lusitania, and Oscar Patterson did the stained glass in um, in Central Hotel as well. And there used to be stained glass panels in each of the windows, which all disappeared when it was refurbished. And I've no idea what happened to them. But Any they were Oscar Patterson what, what period that refurbishment glass. would be? That, uh, um, well, this was the latest refurbishment, mm-hmm. but it was when um, James Miller added the extension to, uh-huh. um, so right to Grand Central. That's when Oscar Patterson did the mm-hmm. did the work in it. No, that, that's it. that's interesting because my uncle, I say my uncle, technically a cousin of my mum's, mm-hmm. was started off age fourteen in the Central Hotel mm-hmm. pre World War Two, right. uh, and ended up being the chief barman. Right. And worked there till he was seventy, mm-hmm. and he his knowledge of the Central Hotel was just like right. mind blowing. Right, uh, yeah, he, he, he used to make mix cocktails for Frank Sinatra and all wow. the rest of it. You he, see, he, that's, he made that's fascinating. Fascinating. It's, it's all other part of the history yeah. of that whole place, and John Logie Baird and the Television yeah. Signal. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Uh, and I know that Central Station commissioned. Now is it Henry Bedford Lemaire? Mm-hmm. The yes, fabulous take, take photographs of it. So yes, I know, I know there are some fabulous. So there, there, must there must be photographs it's, it's somewhere. It's English heritage to have them and not historic environment Scotland. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, you would be able to get your hands on them. So it would be worth actually having a look to see whether it was actually genuine. You'd have, you'd really imagine like it know. must have been photographed at some it point. Must have been photographed because James Miller would be inspired yeah. of it. So that would have but, been tour de force. Absolutely. So anyway, there's this great quote from the American architectural historian Vincent Scully, right, who's talking about the loss of um, Penn Street Station in New York, mm-hmm. which was one of the great kind yeah. of conservation cases. And it's just a, when you see it, it's an astonishing station. And can't believe they destroyed it. I've seen, I've seen photographs. Least, that's where they built what's the huge stadium. It was, yeah, Mad- Madison, Madison Square, Square Garden. Garden. So and his quote is that you know you used to come into because it was it was uh, modelled on a Roman baths and you used to come into the city kind of like you know a Roman god, and now we come in as like scurrying like a rat, <laughs> and, uh, and he sees that quote as somebody was going the West End is much better than the South Side because they'd say yeah but I get to come into Central Station every morning I come into the city like a god through this fabulous station whereas you come in at you know Buchanan Street Underground like a rat. <laughs> That's why the South Side's better. <laughs> well, I, I, I think I, I don't know how long we've played, but it's it's been great fun, you know, as as ever. Absolutely, Nori, it's always a pleasure. Uh, and this is this this is this is the end of the war, is it? Well, it is. Yeah, uh, we've hit the buffers, and indeed, appropriately yeah. enough, we've hit the buffers last, of Central last Station. E- last episode <laughs> of the yeah, indeed, uh, of the second series. So yeah, it's a, it's been a pleasure doing this with everybody. So really, so really th- thank you for interviewing me, and thank you very much for allowing me to pick turn the tables games. on me. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Great fun. Thank you. Thank you. Glasgow City Heritage Trust is an independent charity and grant funder that promotes the understanding, appreciation and conservation of Glasgow's historic built environment. Do you want to know more? Have a look at our website at glasgowheritage.org.uk and follow us on social media at Glasgow Heritage. This podcast was produced by Inner Ear for Glasgow City Heritage Trust. The podcast is kindly sponsored by the National Trust for Scotland and supported by Tunnocks.